Hello, this is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. Oh, yeah. Woo! We're excited to be Let's here. Do this. <laughs> okay. Today, we're talking about another white director, okay. male director. I, let, let's do a bit of housekeeping off the top. First of all, I'm sorry that we had a week without a podcast. There were technical difficulties, and then I was away, and I, I realized that you had nothing to listen to. Nothing, nothing, you know, to put on in the background as you're making love. <laughs> I thought more it was like cleaning the bathroom and stuff like that. Yeah, or, or whatever, whatever you monsters do with your time. Uh, so that's the first bit of housekeeping. We apologize. Secondly, uh, it's true. It's another white male. I got a text uh, the other day by uh, from a, a longtime listener talking about how we don't do enough women. And it's true. It is absolutely true. We don't. And, and you know, may, mea culpa. Here's the thing. Justin and I, we're kind of like macho bros. <laughs> we... <laughs> We, we, we only, I'm doing reps right now while you're talking. That's how I get pumped for this podcast. We can only relate to movies about and by men. Um, but more to the point, we're cowards. We're, and we're cowards. <laughs> we, were, we were. We thought we we could talk about Catherine Briat. Yeah, or, let's do Catherine Briat. Is okay, that, we we can do her. Uh, I just think that we would embarrass ourselves talking about her. And also, uh, you, you know. We had trouble finding somebody who we could both agree on uh, because Justin here doesn't want to do Doris Wishman. Well, I'll do Doris Wishman far away. I don't want to have to watch her movies. I, I love her. But, but we could also do someone like Meryl Streep. Yeah. We can take the easy way out and do an actress. Nope. We're doing Catherine Briach. That's who we're doing. Okay. In two weeks, we're going to do that. Exactly. And, because next week. And that will fill our quota for the next 50 episodes. But, but, but seriously, we should. Today, we're going to be talking about Francis Ford Coppola. Exactly. We're going to say all the different versions of his name today. Just, Justin and I watched an interview with Francis Ford Coppola on Charlie Rose, where Charlie Rose called him Coppola. So we're sticking to that one. Yeah. But if I say it differently, which I guaranteed will, just go with it. Or send us angry emails at importcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Francis, if you're listening, feel free to write in and tell <laughs> us how to pronounce your name. So Francis Ford Coppola, we're... We're focusing, actually, on his final three movies. The Vineyard Trilogy, if you will, which are the films that he shot in and around his vineyard that he owns, which you can also go visit. And I think they have a hotel there as well. Yeah, he has a, a wine business, Francis Ford Coppola uh, Wineries, which uh, has a pretty good reputation. Uh, these are movies that... He... Also have a great reputation. Yeah. These are movies that he made with his own money that he made from hawking wine. And the whole hype around these movies, Youth Without Youth... Tetro and Twixt was, okay, Coppola has spent 20 years being a bit of a hack, uh, making hack movies like The Rainmaker or Bram Stoker's Dracula or Jack uh, because he had to pay off debts. How dare you besmirch the name of Jack? <laughs> so he had My to... first theatrically seen Francis Ford Coppola movie. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and we laughed and laughed. Did you cry a little bit at the end? I did. Uh, but <laughs> we'll get to Jack in a minute. But... Uh, the hype around these movies was, okay, Coppola's back to the basics. He's he's starting over again. He's written these movies. He's directing them. Full creative control. Now the genius is coming back. Did the genius come back? So these movies are Youth Without Youth, Tetro, and Twixt, in that order. Yeah. So let's start with Youth Without Youth. And this is obviously, like, if you're going to make a comeback picture, you need a star. So we got Tim Roth. Hollywood's Tim Roth. <laughs> Mr. Orange himself, the villain in The Musketeer. Uh, what other movies uh, is he Planet in? of the Apes. How could we forget? 
Four Rooms. Oh. His true star making turn. Love it. Um, Justin and I watched Four Rooms a few months ago. Uh, it didn't hold up. No, it didn't. I don't even think we, we kind of fast forwarded through most of it, didn't we? A lot of a lot of it's shocking. But hey, this is not the Quentin Tarantino podcast. <laughs> or the Tim Ross cast. I got it before we go further on Youth Without Youth, I gotta just put my feelings about Francis Coppola on the table, and you can tell me if this makes sense to you. Mm. Francis Ford Coppola commonly considered one of the greatest directors of all t- of all time. He's made four movies that are on any list of, you know, 500 movies you need to, you need to see before you die. Godfather, Godfather 2, The Conversation, Apocalypse Now. Great movies. And they all came pretty much in a quick succession to each they other. They were all in the 70s. And after that, though, he had One from the Heart, which is where he blew all his money, and which is kind of an interesting movie. Mm-hmm. But... After that, he never made a great movie again, in my opinion. He made some interesting movies. Yeah, well, the thing about Francis Ford Coppola is that he's always been interesting as a filmmaking figure. Like, he started from the bottom, he worked with Roger Corman, he directed uh, Dementia 13, which is like a little axe-murdering film. He made uh, sexploitation films, nudie cutie films, when he was, like, in his late teens, like The Bellboy and The Playgirls. And then after working for the studio for a while, making musicals, he went out and he did his own picture called The Rain People, which was like an arty kind of on the cusp of the Hollywood New Wave film. Mm -hmm. And he heralded all these Hollywood New Wave figures, and he was friends with some, like George Lucas. He created a company called American Zoetrope, where he wanted to fund all these young filmmakers and give them the chance. But Lucas's project, THX 1138, completely tanked the studio, and so did all the choices that Francis Ford Coppola made. And that's something that kind of went through his career, which he would have this huge high and then just get, I don't know, enthusiastic and just throw money in every direction until he was broke again. But even though Coppola is a great figure and has made four great films and many other interesting movies, um, he's not somebody who has ever really interested me that much or got me that excited. And I'm not quite sure why that is, but I think I would pinpoint it to the fact that... um, so, So you got these four movies. The Conversation and Apocalypse Now are undeniably his they are they are francis ford coppola movies through and through the godfather which you know controversial opinion is a great film that was a work for hire job for him and he did it exceptionally well um but i don't i I don't see kind of I, i don't think his authorial presence is as interesting as somebody like martin scorsese's where even steven spielberg or even steven spielberg i, I mean or somebody like brian de palma who i don't think has made as many good movies as francis for coppola has or ma- has made as great movies there's this sort of weird intensity to his presence as a filmmaker he has these preoccupations uh that recur through his movies um that give them all sort of this electrical charge um you, you feel like you feel like he's this guy sort of laying his guts on a slab a bit. And I feel like Francis Ford Coppola never quite... He doesn't quite have the same voice that, that makes him an interesting figure. And I don't want to sound like I'm just completely auteur biased because there are other filmmakers who don't have the same authorial presence who who I like a lot. But I, I feel like I would find Coppola more interesting if he made more great movies. Uh, it's, and maybe I'm being like a little bit. Uh, could it be maybe because sometimes he takes them from an experimental place, which is not always that interesting? I would say, like, whether he's trying to adapt The Outsiders or Rumblefish or. Neither of which I think is successful. One of the, the Cotton Club he made or Tucker, a Man in His Dream, which does have a stylistic kind of construct that his other films don't have. Mm-hmm. 
I'm trying to figure out what my feeling about him is. I, I I think you feel his presence as a director in all his films. You you just there's a little something missing. Like when like you, a passion. You, or? Well, he's very ostentatious as a filmmaker a yes. lot of the time. Austere. Well, he, I think he's quite rococo actually. Like he he really throws a lot of emotion. Oh, do you think so? Well, a movie like The Outsiders is so kind of over the top, or Bram Stoker's Dracula is so over the top. Yeah, but it also feels very mechanical in the way that it's constructed, specifically The Outsiders. I, I, I am missing a bit of passion, because both those two films that I mentioned, I think, feel a bit like somewhat cynical exercises. They mm-hmm. definitely, or maybe that's a, a mean way to put it, but they feel like pragmatic exercises. Yeah. Uh, they feel like movies that he's not fully invested in, and so he's trying to make up for it in the sense of putting a lot of directorial flourishes in there but when i see his movies i don't see the same sort of weird emotional autobiography that i see in martin scorsese's movies uh, he definitely coppola feels to me like basically somebody who didn't have as strong a personal vision as martin scorsese or even brian de palma or steven spielberg but he was capable of greatness or was capable of shaping material like the godfather into greatness and that greatness now has eluded him ever it, since. It almost feels like a lot of those projects you mentioned are him trying to move on to the next step. Like, they all feel like films where he's going, all right, I'm going to make this one, and then I'm going to move on to this really good one. And then the really good one kind of always just moves a little bit further down the line. Well, he basically said as much. I saw him on Inside the Actor's Studio when he said that the success of The Godfather was a little bit bittersweet for him because he didn't get into the business to make movies like The Godfather. He wanted to make personal films. He wanted to be a writer-director. He didn't want to adapt a best-selling novel. So finally, when he gets to take it all under his control with a movie like Use Without Use, we're supposed to see that great vision that he's been kind of muffling through his other pictures. And the fact that the greatness is not there... No, it is not. (laughs) I I think underlines what's missing to me about Coppola. So Use Without Use is about Tim Ross... This movie came out in 2007, incidentally. ...who's playing an aging academic reaching the end of his life who hasn't finished the book that he's been working on forever about the history of language. He continually thinks about the long lost love that he left behind. And then he gets struck by lightning (laughs) and like a butterfly coming out of his cocoon. He shows up as a young whippersnapper played by 40 something Tim Roth. (laughs) Yeah. Just, just the ideal of youthful masculinity, (laughs) Tim Roth in 2007. Looking like he'd rather be anywhere else. (laughs) Uh, This is a movie, so Youth Without Youth, uh, it's set sort of before and during the Second World War. Uh, After this academic is reborn as a strapping young 47-year-old man, he gets into this, like, weird uh, globetrotting Nazi adventure where he's kind of like a card shark type. Also, we (laughs) forgot to mention he has psychic powers. Oh, yeah. And he can win at cards, read books just by touching them. He's like Luke Besson's Lucy. And also get people to point guns at themselves and pull the trigger. And there are several scenes where he has Gollum-like conversations with himself. Uh, This is a movie that I have a certain fondness for, even though it's terrible. Well, because it's just so batshit crazy. It is crazy. And also, it definitely feels like a personal film. Coppola was 70 when he made this film, and you sense that this movie is sort of like a metaphor for his own, um, what he hoped for, artistic rebirth. Um, 
you know, he he wants he wants to show that he's still relevant and that he can make a movie like a young man again. This movie feels like it could be a student film. Yeah, well, it looks like a student film yeah. from its digital cinematography to its weird episodic structure, which makes you go like, have you seen a movie before? And also its use of um, philosophical discussion, which is like 101 material where you're like, OK, yeah, the nuclear bomb. Yeah, we shouldn't use it. This is definitely a film of ideas, banal ideas, I would say, <laughs> yes. uh, about time and isn't time a bitch and uh, aging and memory and love. It's the kind of film filled with dream sequences where a lot of them are just flipped upside down, and you're like, "That's not enough, man. You got you got to give me more than that." It's quite a difficult film to follow, actually. It's a bit of a slog. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of life to it. Uh, Tim Roth is a real cipher in this film, I would say. Um, okay, a minute ago I said that I'm I'm fond of the film. <laughs> and then I, you're just ragging on I, it. I think what I like about it is it has a certain earnestness to it. There's nothing hip about this movie. No, I mean, from the opening credits, which styles itself off the classic like color pictures from the early 50s, uh, right up until like its ending, which is the most melodramatic thing that you could possibly imagine, portrayed in the lamest way imaginable. <laughs> it's just from end to end. I, this is really mean to say, but an older man trying to appear young, but using the style of times gone by. Okay, now I'm going to stop you right here because this older man stuff, I think, like could be a manhole that we're going to fall into because I don't want to be that guy. To say like, oh, they're old now, so yeah, they out, can't do... They're yeah. out to pasture. Yeah. Because, you know... Martin Scorsese. Ma- Martin Scorsese, I think The Wolf of Wall Street is just an incredibly energetic movie. Yeah, it could, he could have been 22 when he made that. Yeah, exactly. Or, uh, But I was reminded a little bit of... Uh, you saw the Brian De Palma film, right? The, yes, the, the De Palma doc. Yeah, where at the end of it he says talking about his own late career he says look the movies that you're remembered for are the movies you make in your 30s your 40s and your 50s and you can say whatever you want about you know the birds or marnie or frenzy but hitchcock's later movies were not as good um and he thinks it's the same for all directors now i don't want to be that guy i think there are lots of examples of directors making great movies but the specific movie is not good but I thought a lot about what De Palma said when I saw this. Um, And the other thing is that it's weird art. Like you can even take it to the other level because he's imitating these old styles, but using new technology, which makes them look uglier and more unpleasant than they would be if he had just shot it on 35 millimeter. The movie looks really bad. And it reminded me of how good his movies in the seventies looked like, I, I know that in the 70s, he was working with literally the best cinematographers who ever lived. Mr. Cafe Society himself. Vittorio Storano, yes. who, who did... Uh, Both Exorcist, uh, the beginning movies. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. know that. But The Bernie Harlan and the Paul Schrader one. But yeah, he, direct, he did the cinematography for Apocalypse Now. And of course, Gordon Willis did the Godfather films famously. But, uh, but then you look at Youth Without Youth, and, and you want, it's such an eyesore. And you think, like, how did somebody you know, know so much about what movies looked like and make something like this. I flipped to the commentary very briefly while I was watching the movie and uh, Francis Ford Coppola was talking about like a kiss that Tim Roth and his um, reincarnated lover have at one point. And he was talking about how an editor, the name escapes me at this moment, told him that like a good kiss is like three feet of film or something like that. Mm. And how he applied this to the kiss in the movie. And I'm like, you know what? That's, interesting that's like a filmmaker wanting to learn and trying to apply things but in this case it just like it doesn't work it's such a hodgepodge of 
crazy ideas with an uncharismatic actor, ugly looking film, and an episodic story that is Hard. so shallow yeah. and goes nowhere. To the point that when it ended, I was like, what is going on? But I remember when I saw this when it came out, um, I definitely thought this was one of those movies that was going to get a lot of defenders. That it would not do well, but it would have a cult following that surrounds it. And it has not. Which is weird, I think. I read um, it's in Cineast, there was an article, I can't remember who wrote it, but maybe two issues ago, there was like, in defense of Coppola's late career. And uh, I read it and thinking, oh, okay, let's see what this is. But basically the whole article, the argument came down to the fact that, well, people want to put directors out to pasture when they're old. And uh, you've got to admire that Coppola... Uh, has this sort of freeform, loose approach to filmmaking now, as opposed to a movie like The Rainmaker, which is so rigid and muscular. Um, I like those ideas in the abstract. But (laughs) But having to sit there and watch the movie. The article doesn't really defend Youth Without Youth on the grounds of what it actually is. It's like, (laughs) theoretically, what it represents by being made by Francis Ford Coppola. Okay, so we've just spent like 10 minutes shitting on a great filmmaker. So uh, let's talk about Tetro. Which I liked. I like Tetro as well. Yeah, not a lot, but enough. (laughs) It's a movie that kind of coasts on the charm of its location, the way that it looks in this crisp, almost noirish black and white and the lead performance by Mr. Brown Bunny himself, Vincent Gallo. Uh, charm, you said. Yes. Yeah. No, uh, Vincent Gallo, I think, is uh, outstanding in this movie. He's got a real natural charisma. It made me think how much I would like to see Vincent Gallo in more movies. I mean, I know he's busy selling his sperm to the highest owner. <laughs> so what is this movie about, Will? Uh, Alden Allenrich. Young Han Solo himself. Yeah, I, I might be pronouncing his name wrong. I don't know. That's I, why I threw it to you, so I didn't have to say his name. I don't give a shit. Anyway, he plays a, a young man who works on a cruise liner. And uh, when is this movie set? I don't know. The the present. Let's just say the present. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so the cruise liner docks. I saw this movie a week ago. Yeah, we shit. saw this movie a while ago. Uh, it, uh, it, it docks in a Spanish town. Uh, I forget where. <laughs> Just gloss over the stuff you don't remember. Don't bring attention to it. I don't know. Who gives a shit? But anyway, his older brother, who he idolizes, Tetro, played by Vincent Gallo, who he thinks is this great writer and this great man, is living there. Uh, Tetro is not his real name, but he's changed his name to Tetro to distance himself from his family. And uh, particularly his overbearing father, a composer. Who may have a um, reflection in Francis Ford's own father, who was also a composer and did scores for films like The Outsiders and other stuff. A very bad score for The Outsiders, I think. Yes, that uh, Coppola actually replaced on the DVD release was a different score. And he couldn't replace the score while his father was alive because that would have been... That would have been... It would have put too much of a strain on their relationship. Mm -hmm. So I I like this movie. Uh, Again, it looks really nice. The fact that it's in black and white hides, I think, the flaws of... It's digital cinematography. Yeah, but... the cinematography is very high contrast and quite beautiful. Vincent Gallo is good. And I also, it has this melancholy tone to it that I like. The pacing is as slack as Youth Without Youth is, but because it's a much simpler film. This one is more like a hangout movie, while mm-hmm. Youth Without Youth is more plot driven. And because Youth Without Youth's plot is all over the place and difficult to follow, Tetro is more easier to kind of latch onto because Vincent Gallo is such a charismatic figure and it's fun to hang out with him, even as crazy as he is. 
Um, and Tetro does interesting things with time and the way that it presents events. For example, a lot of the flashbacks are presented as like full frame uh, mm-hmm. color footage shot on an even cheaper DV cam mm-hmm. than the one that the rest of the film is yeah, photographed. And with. there are elements of kind of like magical realist stuff. And there's a big, the big climax of the movie is kind of this operatic spectacle, which is in kind of a different key with the rest of the movie, but I think it works. Uh, I, I like I like Coppola's experimentation in this film. Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder, like, what are the projects that would suit Coppola more? Like, stuff like Tetra works, stuff like Use Without Use doesn't. And the other film we're going to talk about, who knows? We'll get to it. Maybe it's good. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh-huh. um, do you, like, what would you like him to to see him do, or what do you think are his strengths as far as, like, in well, Tetro? Well, based on, on this movie, I think the movie fundamentally works because the relationship between the two brothers works. I think it's a it's relatable, this... Uh, I mean, it'll, it'll sound familiar when I say it, but this younger brother who realizes that this older brother that he's idolized is, you know... Not cool. A bit of a fuck-up, mm-hmm. just like the rest of us. Yeah. And the relationship between Tetro and his father mm-hmm. fundamentally works, too. All the movies we're talking about today, these three Vineyard Trilogy films, are apparently very autobiographical, or at least sort of spiritually autobiographical for Coppola. And I mean, I think it often across. literally autobiographical. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about the movie that we really want to talk about. The, the reason that we're even doing this podcast. So a lot of times when me and Will pick a subject, we're like high-fiving each other and like <laughs> laughing about how fun this will be, because we wanted to do Coppola, because we wanted to watch Twix again. Yeah. And so after the last podcast we did, me and Will... Just sat down and we were like chomping at the bit to watch his Val Kilmer versus Vampire picture. <laughs> and then the weight of the realization of what we've done kind of hit us as we have to watch this film. Twixt, I mean, all the ingredients are there for a movie that I would like. Val Kilmer? Val Kilmer, fat old Val Kilmer, <laughs> which I like. I think it's cool. Uh, Bruce Dern is in it. It's uh, Val Kilmer plays a Stephen King-like horror novelist. In fact, in the movie, they call him the bargain basement Stephen King, who wanders into a small town on a book tour. And he meets this old sheriff, played by the great Bruce Dern, who tells him that, hey, you want to see a dead body? Or, I don't know, something yeah. like that. And <laughs> it's a real stand by me. And basically, <laughs> so they walk down the train tracks. <laughs> That's the inciting incident for a long and winding journey Uh, That seemingly goes everywhere and nowhere at the same time. uh, Yeah, during the night, Val Kilmer, maybe he dreams it, but uh, it's a little bit (laughs) Goes to another dimension. Goes to another dimension that's kind of a black and white, looks like a video game cutscene, where he meets a uh, vampire girl played by Elle Fanning, Mm -hmm. or he meets somebody, he meets Father Guido Sarducci, Don Novello. Hey, don't forget, he also meets the great Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, God. (laughs) Just hanging out there for some reason. Yeah. um, The thing about this movie is it's very static. Yes. So what ended up happening was that when most of our friends saw this film at the Toronto National Film Festival, Francis Ford Coppola was talking about how he shot the film with the intent of going on the road and editing it as he's showing it to the audience. So every experience would be different. Mm -hmm. So he would read the room and point it in the direction where he feels like it should go. See, and I think at every screening he would read the room and say, boy, let's just... (laughs) Let's just end it. Yeah. <laughs> so what this result and so maybe because he was thinking that he was going to show it th- that way, this film has no kind of cinematic feel at all. It's shot like a sitcom. <laughs> Every camera uh, angle is static. Nothing moves. It's 
we said useless how youth was ugly looking. This is, as our friend Peter Koplowski uh, said, Francis Ford Coppola making a David Dakota film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which that is. Ooh, that's a deep cut. Yeah. Um, but this movie also has a strong autobiographical resonance, which is a reason that I also feel a little bit bad making fun of this one. Uh, Do you really feel bad making fun of this one? Because it's bad. It, it's bad, but like Francis, I'm on a first name basis now. Francis is really like throwing a lot of himself into the big twist ending of this film where, spoiler, you're not going to see this. Spoiler. Uh, <laughs> we find out that Val Kilmer is still trying to get over the death of his daughter. Uh, she died on a jet ski accident. That's yeah. very much the way that Francis Ford Coppola's own son died. Yeah, which is that his son was decapitated by a rope that was attached to two different boats. Mm. Um, and that is actually shown in the movie. And I can't even imagine how emotional that must have been for Coppola to have to film that and kind of relive it. And it's so weird coming as it does in this movie, which otherwise is incredibly goofy and, and, and stupid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, which feels like... To throw in s- such a kind of emotional like hand grenade like that and to know that it's based on something that actually happened to him. I mean, you know, good on him that he's trying to express himself through art. I just... I know, it's so unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, this movie, it's, its biggest sin is that it's not fun. Yeah. Like, with everything going on, it's so forced and unfunny, and, like, why why is this happening? Well, I like the scene where, any scene where Val Kilmer is Skyping with someone, <laughs> I think is a delight, because Francis Copeland clearly doesn't quite know what Skype is or how it works, so he thinks that uh, when Skype comes on screen, anybody could just, l- like they'll just appear on the computer without you opening them or or approving the call. As Edward Snowden has showed us, that is actually how Skype works. <laughs> so the thing about Twixt is we were so excited to talk about it. And after finishing it, we realized we don't really have that much to say about it. So th- this, though, gets back to that kind of old man thing. Because you compare this movie to a movie like Bram Stoker's Dracula, yes. which I I think is a flawed film, but it has a lot of energy to it. Yeah, I mean, the decision that Coppola did to do everything in camera, even though the film is weirdly structured and features baffling performances from people like Keanu Reeves, <laughs> um, makes it really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, while something like Twixt has nothing for you to hold on to. In Bram Stoker's Dracula, in Bram Stoker's Dracula you can see him sort of paying homage to sort of the Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe movies, or, you know, Mario Bava, or Hammer Horror films. Or even, like, George Melier and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, he, he takes, he combines all that, and he gives it this sort of really sort of feverish, pulpy, turbocharged energy. <laughs> and you can see him try to do a bit of that in Twix. Well, in Twix, it felt like he picked up a bunch of, like, bootleg Sierra adventure games. And yeah. was like, I really love the feel of these. Yeah. Um, and Or it reminds me a little bit of the game in Existence. <laughs> <laughs> at least Exi- Existence is a little bit more fun to watch than this is. Yeah. Because this is miserable. Even at the end, when Valkymer finally stabs the vampire, and a whole geyser of blood shoots up, and and you're like, oh, yeah, I guess that's fun. And then the movie's over. I liked the scene where Val Kilmer does Brando's voice. <laughs> yeah, he imitates Marlon Brando. That's pretty good. <laughs> Other than that, don't watch this movie. So uh, we, we really shit on a great filmmaker uh, this episode. But I, I guess uh, if I can throw a bone in the poor old man's direction. <laughs> last summer, I saw- Yeah, because that's what he needs. He <laughs> yeah. needs Will Sloan to finally <laughs> give him the uh, respect he deserves. Yeah, what have I accomplished? Nothing. <laughs> I haven't directed The Godfather, but here's the thing. Last summer, I saw The Godfather for the first time in 10 years and the second time in my life, okay? 
Uh, I saw it as a teenager, as you do. Thought it was a good movie, but it never really became a favorite of mine for some, for one reason or another. I don't know. Maybe I think because it, it, there's too much like history behind it, right? Like you really like, take it's, it. No, it's good. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, all the scenes are super iconic, even if you've only seen it once. So I watched it last summer, and my God, it really is good. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of just that opening wedding scene. There's so much going on in that scene. There is so the way he puts all of the the chess players on the board, but in a way that doesn't seem like he's doing it. Like it doesn't seem like a lot of heavy exposition when he's establishing all these characters, the scenes where the characters just come in and try to ask a favor of the Don, uh, you get so much of how powerful the Don is without them even saying it. Do you think this is what Coppola really wants to hear that the Godfather is good though? He's like, he, he's, he's rewinding the Tetro part and he's like, (laughs) look at all the good stuff they said about it. I'm sure he's searching his name on Twitter a lot. I also admire that. I know Coppola works a lot with sort of like film students these days. He apparently just directed some sort of weird multimedia project, some live webcast project with a lot of film students. And he also was a you know a purveyor of wanting to put film and filmmaking in the hands of whoever he has that famous quote from that documentary that i think was shot at can uh, you know the one where a bunch of directors are interviewed about what the future of filmmaking is going to be oh yeah, yeah and yeah. he says that thing which is like i feel that like the future will be in the hands of uh, his words not mine an overweight young woman in like arkansas somewhere holding a camera i'm paraphrasing okay that but... quote's a little problematic but... <laughs> yes it is but i think there's a nice sentiment somewhere in there mm-hmm. uh, and, and that's you know a real um great ideal and belief that he wants this kind of filmmaking to get out of the studio system and to be in the hands of anyone but it's just you know uh, not out, him two out of three or one out of three ain't bad like yeah so listen francis if you're listening please just keep making movies yeah we'll, we'll keep seeing them yeah maybe if there's another tetra in there that that's an evening well spent i would say and you'll see another twixt and you know i'm, I'm glad i did in a weird way <laughs> i've seen it twice now well third time's the charm right yeah what if you got a call and he invited you over to his house and he's like listen i'm gonna edit it on the fly while oh, you're watching fucking dream come true <laughs> Uh, to hang out. Okay, listen, I know I said that Coppola has never been a, a huge interest of mine, but if Coppola called me to hang out, I would be so down. Yeah. I mean, j- just think of the life he's lived. Oh, I saw one from the heart in preparation for this podcast. This is the movie he made right after Apocalypse Now. And it's the one that completely bankrupted him. Yeah, and it got terrible reviews at the time, but this is a movie where he spent so much money building this giant Las Vegas set in his, in his studio. Uh, it's this gigantic musical that's about kind of uh, ennui in a marriage. And it was designed to be a very quick shoot. Uh, Originally, he wanted to edit it live while he was shooting it. And it kind of ballooned into something like a lot of his projects, whether it be Apocalypse Now or even um, Apocalypse Now, (laughs) (laughs) um, that got out of control. And the press, like they tend to do, uh, (laughs) jumped (laughs) like... Well, as, as as Donald Trump said, uh, it's it's not freedom of expression when they say things that are false. I just teed that one up for you, and I was waiting for you to just hit it. Um, but it, but it's true. I mean, he got away with Apocalypse Now. Mm-hmm. There was so much success making that movie, but it ended up being an artistic and financial success. Like he can't he can't get away with that forever. Yeah. Eventually, people are gonna. It's just it's only natural. People are gonna have it in for him. There's a really great documentary on the Blu-ray, which is like an hour long, about the studio that he started 
to make this movie and how the fact that it went so over budget and he was just being kind of blackballed everywhere, being like, how dare you spend this much money? Mm -hmm. I think it was only something like 30 million on like a musical project is like, is, you know, super dishonest and morally bankrupt. Anyway, uh, that's why we should repeal the First Amendment. Anyway, I, one from the heart is, is, is very thor- interesting. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. I thought it was, I, you know, it's not quite as great as it should be. Mm-hmm. There's a bit of a disconnect between the style of the movie and the story of the marriage or the relationship. Uh, the, the relationship doesn't quite resonate in the way that it ought to. Having said that, there's so much going on in the movie and it looks amazing. And, you know, Terry Gar, uh, really, really pretty. <laughs> so it's very problematic. But, yep. But, but she's great. I love Terry Gar. There's so much going on. I think it's a it's a thoroughly enjoyable set. And that's one that people should go and revisit, especially because a lot of people just haven't heard about it. Mm-hmm. All right. What are we doing next week, Will? Uh, so not a female director. We're going to do that after. But what we are doing is we're going to have a little bit of fun. <laughs> yeah. Which know. we say every single week, which is like, we don't want to have to try to, you know, flex our intellectual muscles or anything we like know that. What? Hey, listen, I watched three late period Coppola movies <laughs> for this one. I deserve a bit of a break. <laughs> Even though we were like laughing about how much fun <laughs> it's going to be. Um, we're going to be doing, how would you put it? Movies that have been recontextualized into other movies. So, so What's Up Tiger Lily by Woody Allen, uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie, and The Journals of Gene Seberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, let's see how it goes. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun, won't it, Will? And we're just going to have to lean back and not do any kind of work. Hell yeah. If you'd like to ask us any questions or have any comments, Francis Ford, you know, yeah. shoot him over our way. Our email address is importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter, which I think would probably be easier because yeah. sending an email is always such an arduous process for some people, especially if you don't know who you like the person. And you don't know how to write. <laughs> And Twitter, you don't need to know how to write. What's your Twitter handle? I'm at Will Sloan Esquire, E-S-Q. And I am DeClue, D-E-C-L-O-U-X, the letter J. All right. Well, till next time, my name's Justin DeClue. I was Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So did you hear somebody ask uh, Werner Herzog if he plays Pokemon Go? Yeah, what was his exact response? It was probably something It was like, something along the lines of, uh, what is a Pokemon? I, I do not know what a Pokemon is. And then people just jumped on that. Oh my god! Werner Herzog! Talking about Pokemon! Everywhere. And then I saw you grumpily wrote on Twitter where you're like, they're going to ruin Werner Herzog just like they ruined Nicolas Cage. <laughs> yeah. the memification. Yeah. Uh, th- those weren't my exact words, but that's the spirit of what I said. And, like, do you think that's a general, like, problem that's going to come up? And I've seen a million Herzog tweets from that point on. Like, yeah. cans of soup that are, like, chicken. Like, this chicken does not exist and all yeah. that stuff. Or here's Herzog at at Comic-Con next to a guy dressed as Batman or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Herzog definitely, like, brings it on himself a little bit with all of his carefully curated eccentricity. Do you feel he's an Andy Kaufman-like figure when, like, the behind closed doors, he's like, oh, well, finally I can stop the act. I think that he is basically what he is, but he's also savvy enough that he knows that eccentricity is part of his brand. And yeah. so he plays it up under certain circumstances. At the same time, though, like, I get tired of, like, 
seeing all of this, all of this nonstop. Oh, Werner Herzog did a goofy thing. He's a he's an art filmmaker who's also kind of weird. I don't know. Yeah, like, but that ruins it for you. Like, well, no, it doesn't. Things need to stay pure, right? It well, doesn't ruin it for me. I think it's just it, it's just such a it's just kind of such an easy thing to do. It's people who otherwise would be tweeting about Pokemon Go who want to bring a little bit of high culture into their brand, but also show how unpretentious they are. <laughs> and you you are going to fault them for doing this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't like people. <laughs> yeah, you don't. I mean, I don't really like people either, which is great audience, but we like you, whoever's listening well, to this podcast. I like the people who have rated and reviewed us. <laughs> iTunes. Even that one guy who gave us one star was all right. One star! Hey, at least, you know what? At least he gave us a chance. Yeah, that's right. Do you think he listens, like, angrily every week to the podcast? Well, he said he wouldn't be coming back. (laughs) Yeah, but those people usually do. I'm going to take him at his word. There are a lot of other entertainment options out there. Yeah, like you can listen to podcasts like the Adam Carolla Show. Yeah, uh, Kevin Smith's podcast. Well, I was having sex with my wife a minute ago, and... That's, <laughs> that's your Kevin Smith? That's my Kevin Smith. So I can close my eyes and see <laughs> the room with me. Hey, snoochie boochies. <laughs> your Kevin Smith's got to sound like this. <laughs> he sounds like a mountain man of some kind. <laughs> but man, Kevin Smith... Speaking of great filmmakers... What, what, uh, how much did you love Kevin Smith when you were a kid? Oh, I mean, like, as a teenager, you know, like any teenager of my of my vintage, I liked Kevin Smith. Yeah, like... Clerks, Clerks Mallrats... Mallrats, Chasing Amy... Dogma. Yeah. And then Jane Silent Bob was a real that litmus one I, test. That one I didn't like at the time. Um, <laughs> but now... Oh, but now... It <laughs> huge man. Aged like fine wine. You know, I used to listen to Smodcast when it first started. No, and, me too, because it was one really of the... interesting. Well, I never... Like, in the early days of podcasts, that was one of the few really big podcasts, mm-hmm. like around 2007 or so. So, of course, a lot of people listen to it. I remember, I listened to maybe 10 episodes of it, and I remember with each episode kind of hoping that he would be smarter. <laughs> what? Really? Yeah, because, I don't know, there was nonstop talk about him having sex with his wife and masturbating. Isn't that what all us dudes just do every day, Will? Well, sure. None of the Plato's and the K's. Look, I'm all for a little bit of sex talk, but I feel like it should be it should be proportionate. Okay, yeah. I, I mean, I thought it interesting about filmmaking and stuff like that, but the second he got into weed, it was all oh, over. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's when he lost me, too. <laughs> I mean... He has been experimenting with his new films, which are... Yeah, very... Did you like Tusk? Red State? I liked maybe 30% of Tusk. Yeah. And I thought Red State was pretty watchable. Yeah. Yeah. And Yoga Hosers. You're really excited about it, um, aren't you? Well, I, I actually... Once we're done recording, I'm going to go out to the to the tent that I have in front of the Young and Dundas <laughs> Cineplex, waiting for it to open. <laughs> to pay your $75 to see a Q&A with Kevin Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs>